0: Good morning, everybody out there. The National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. They talk to you about the benefits of cooperatives and how they work, why they work, which most people do not understand co-ops. Uh, as a matter of fact, Chuck Snyder, the president of National Cooperative Bank said that perhaps 90% of Americans don't know what a cooperative is. They don't understand it, even though a lot of Americans are members of credit unions and housing co ops and different kinds of co ops, but they really don't understand a co op. And this morning we have Dr. Ann Hoyt on the line with us this morning, who is an educator who can tell us a lot about co ops. But Ann, could you start off by telling us? Well, first off, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. How did you get involved in teaching about co-op or get involved with co-ops altogether?
1: Well, many years ago, I was a member of the Berkeley Co-op while I was in college, actually in Minnesota. But when I went back home, I shopped and used my membership at Berkeley and didn't think a whole lot about it until I was in graduate school at the University of California, and I was taking a class in community organization, and we were assigned a project. And my project ended up being a consumer cooperative buying club that needed to have someone organize co-ops in low-income communities. So I learned about co-ops there and became inspired about them and wanted to work more with co-ops because of that experience.
0: Buying clubs in low-income communities, why would that work? What causes buying clubs in low-income communities? What were the benefits?
1: Well, the benefits were that people could buy food and save a great deal of money because we were pre-ordering food. We didn't have a store. And I did my master's thesis on whether or not this mattered, and on average people were saving 20% on the cost of the food they purchased. It worked in Sacramento where I was doing this because – A number of small buying groups had gotten together to order everything and process everything on computers. Now, that was back in the days when we had um, key punch cards, if you remember (laughs) that. I remember. A long time ago.
0: IBM Um, key punch cards, yes.
1: Right, exactly. And what we did was get groups of people together, and they were usually neighbors or friends or maybe members in a church group or had some affiliation. And they would meet once a month and go through this huge catalog of foods that we had available and order full cases. So you had to negotiate with your neighbors how many bottles of ketchup you were going to buy in or soup or peanut butter or whatever it was. And then we would send that order into a central processing place and the food would be delivered about two weeks later to a central warehouse. Then people went and picked up the food and took it to somebody's driveway or the church or wherever, and divided up the orders and in for individuals. But because we were doing all that food, work ourselves, we were saving significantly on the cost of food, and that's why it worked. And one of the things about it that I was so inspiring to me, besides saving that much money for people, was that when they got together to make out their orders, they talked about what was going on in the na- neighborhood or what their needs were, chatting like neighbors do, and several additional cooperatives grew out of those food co-ops, particularly babysitting co-ops and um, things that people needed in that particular community.
0: You know, it's interesting that there is a need for good quality food, and if you buy it in quantity, the larger quantities you buy, and then you don't have the middleman in place like the store's where you can go pick it up. And so people order the food from a distribution center. They bring it in, and then they distribute it, and you save 20% on the value of it. In low-income communities, folks, really, in matter of fact, any community, but particularly low-income communities, you get a big, huge benefits and savings to the family. And then I hear you say, okay, because they came together, they talked, so they're creating community, and they find out what else is needed. And your story right here, very early on in your career, reminds me of Papa Sen, who was, was in the Hall of Fame, I think last year or a year before, from Senegal. And he said that they started a housing co-op out of need. In the outskirts of suburbs of Dakar, there was no housing, so they created a housing co-op. And from there, they needed to be people to get back into town to, um, to go to work, and the kids had to go into town to go to school. And so they started, they bought buses and started a transportation co-op. And from there, then they they wanted, as, it, as the suburbs grew, if you will, they needed a school, and so they started a school co-op. And so out of need, they kept creating these co-ops, and he concluded that co-ops are developed to solve a community need. If there's no need, there's no need for a co-op. And that's exactly what I'm hearing you say here very quickly into the program today out of your experiences in graduate school.
1: Absolutely, and I have said that since I started working with that co-op, that it's not going to work if nobody wants it. And if nobody needs it, and I think that as much as we believe in the cooperative way of doing business for probably philosophical or justice reasons, it won't work unless people need it and are committed to it.
0: So you got introduced to co-ops early on in your life. Yes. And congratulations on being inducted into the Hall of Fame. The Co-op Hall of Fame for everybody out there is the highest honor you can get if you work in this co-op world. And Dr. Hoyt was honored last Wednesday, inducted into the Hall of Fame. So congratulations. Thank you. So this is how you got started. But when did you decide to make this your life career, particularly education part?
1: Well, I was so inspired by the cooperatives that I was working with in Sacramento that I decided that I would um, write about them as part of my graduate education, my master's degree. And then, during that time, I had been very much involved with food co-ops. This was over a significant period of time. And I was elected as a very unlikely candidate, quite frankly, uh, to serve on the board of the National Consumer Cooperative Bank, it was called in those days. And so I knew a lot of co-op people, and I had finished up my master's degree and My husband and I had a deal that we would trade off jobs every three years. So it was my year to work and his year to choose whatever he wanted to do. And he announced he wanted to go to school in Kansas, uh, which (laughs) wasn't in my life plan. (laughs) So we went to Kansas, and I got a job teaching a family economics course. And the professor said to me, you need to get a Ph.D. if you want to keep your job. So all of a sudden, I was in a Ph.D. program I didn't intend to be in. But during that time, and while I was working on my Ph.D. and serving on the bank board, I I met many different kinds of co-ops, and I saw the power of co-ops in communities, and I saw the power particularly that co-ops generate for economic justice. And when I got out, uh, finished my degree, there was a job available. This was my Ph.D. then. There was a job available at the University of Wisconsin, to do education for cooperatives. And it was the only job I wanted. And the the gods must have been smiling on me because it was the job I got. And I thus became involved in co op education.
0: Wow. It's <laughs> exciting. It's exciting because I have taught for 12 years. I taught math and marketing Good for and with two uh, master's degrees, one in mathematics and another one in master's in business administration with emphasis in marketing. But I didn't hear about co-ops until 20 years ago. And I do property management as my full-time business. And I learned about by managing uh, co-ops, and I have just been so excited uh, about them. And as I have grew up into the National Association of Housing Co-ops, being their immediate past president, and I learned a lot from a guy named Herb Fisher and Roger Wilcox. Roger's ninety-five years old now, and Herb is about eighty-seven, mm-hmm. and their passion for co-op rubbed off on me, and so right now I'm extremely passionate about, and I want to talk to you about this co-ops, the power for justice, but in, in a minute. But why education? And the reason I'm asking you that is because in my family, my mother went back to school and graduated magna cum laude when I was thirteen, and she was the first one in my family to get a degree and then there was total encouragement from everybody particularly my grandfather I'd get an education get an education he would tell that to me whether i was whether he was sober or drunk and so it was always get an education get an education so why did you decide education is your your life pursuit both getting knowledge and then passing that knowledge on
1: it inspired me to see what people could do when they understood what opportunities were available to them. And I was able to help people understand that. And I think I was able to convey because I was so passionate about this way of doing business and why it was fair and why it provided opportunities for people throughout the country that the best place for me to be was to be in education. And, you know, once you get a Ph.D., a lot of avenues are not open to you anymore because you're overeducated. <laughs> so being a professor was the natural next step for me, and this particular job was perfect because it was primarily working with University of Wisconsin Extension, which meant doing a lot of outreach to communities and working with a lot of adults, and that's what I did. So. <laughs> It's hard to explain when you have a passion about something. You've done it very well, and that's a wonderful story that you told. Uh, But once you have this belief and you know that people have made their lives better, you just want to talk about it.
0: See, I, as an educator, uh, listen, the the other side of the story is I never wanted to teach my mother taught, and I know how hard it was uh, (laughs) and how little money she got for teaching. So I never wanted to teach, but to keep from going to Vietnam, which I didn't understand that war still don't quite uh I, I taught- uh middle school and and I got hooked on teaching, particularly with math when you when the student didn't know it didn't want to, didn't want to know it didn't think they could know it, and when they got it, you could see that light turn on their head that was that was tremendous uh compensation- tremendous, but we have to take a break we'll come back and talk to you about education, and I really want to talk about this justice that, that you were talking about, but we'll be right back. Uh, everybody, please don't touch that dial. This is Everything Cooperative. 1450 WOL. Information is power. That's WOL's motto, and that's why they make a great partner for this show, because the National Cooperative Bank is providing information to you about cooperatives, and Dr. Ann Hoyt is our guest today, and she's already talked about the power of cooperatives, uh, the power that when people get what they can do when they work collectively, how much they can get done and how much a better quality of life they can have by working cooperatively in food co-ops or buying clubs or any kind of, I think you call it babysitting co-ops. Daycare co-op. So any kind of co-op, if there's a need, then there's a lot of power in it. So we were talking about this this light coming on, which is fa- always fascinating to me of watching students, when the light comes on with math, I taught at Howard University, and when they would get the, the marketing study and they'd understand how all of the pieces fit, and you'd watch it in their eyes or their being, I kind of feel my sense is if you can help people, change their lives and have a better quality of life, and when they get that knowledge, that's got to be a wonderful, wonderful feeling as the instructor, the person that's getting that. Is that, is that what you get from that?
1: Exactly. Um, I had a story that I told at the um, Hall of Fame banquet that I would be happy to share with you. Please. Um, one of the wonderful things about my life in co-ops is that I have had the opportunity to travel all over the world to visit cooperatives and understand cooperative development um, in other countries. And I was in a village way out in the middle of what appeared to me to be um, not much, very, very dusty roads that we took to get there. And a number of people had walked several miles to come to a class. These were all adults, to come to class in the middle of a field where there was sort of a Tent like thing, so we would be in the shade to learn about cooperatives. And one of the women at this class said to me, I love my co op because it taught me how to read, and no one can ever take that away from me as long as I live. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's what the co ops have done. And historically, they taught people who couldn't afford to go to private schools or weren't welcome at private schools and all schools were private. The early co-ops taught people to read. They taught them to uh, understand numbers. They teach them today in these um, places where people are developing co-ops how to read the books about their co-ops so they can make decisions. And it seemed to me that That is one of the greatest values of a co-op, and the co-op movement itself should be focusing when it's looking at developing co-ops, particularly in limited resource communities, to understand we first have to teach people to read and be able to understand the numbers. Co-ops will come after that, but if they can't read, they don't have the most basic tool for success.
0: What country was that in?
1: Africa. It was in Zambia.
0: Zambia? Yeah. Because um, my late wife and I went to Sierra Leone for our church. Uh, we wanted to build a school in Sierra Leone with several churches coming together, but there was two churches that went over to try to get land that we had been promised to uh, lease it from the government uh, to build this church. And on this land, when we went to visit it, was a man teaching class, and he had as a desk, he had this wire. When you have a roll of wire, it's on this big roll, this big wooden thing. And he turned it up, and he had an a, um, umbrella over it, and he was teaching kids. And what was amazing to me that in Sierra Leone, the the cost of living per capita was $10 per month. Is what most people, the average of what people made. And what it cost to send kids to school was $10 a month. So you, if you had one kid, it would cost you almost everything that you would make to send to school. And if you had two or three, on average, you could not send them to school. So we were there to try to build a school. And the experience that you just talked about, uh, is, is brings that back to how education is so important. And that's where, well, I believe so many people want to come to the U S that, that, all of these people want to come so they can educate their kids. Um, but with Zambia, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, Asia, Central America, uh, and you're talking about the fifth principle of co-ops, and that's education, training, and information. And we're now, most of the time, when when I've been in classes, we've been teaching classes about how to run a co-op, in particular the finances. But originally in 1844, when they brought these principles together in the modern co-op, they, I understood they were teaching the basics of education, reading, writing, and arithmetic. <laughs> and we probably need to get back to that. I remember you're saying that, is that the number of illiterate people here in the United States, and, a, and poor and lack of education also means lack of, of ability to make money. So you get this limited resource communities. I like that better than low-income communities. I'll use that. Limited resource communities. And uh, you deserve, in my mind, for people I see in the Hall of Fame to have gotten that because of what you've done. What are some of the other things that you've learned as you've traveled the world and look at these co-ops and education? And what else have you gotten that you could share with
1: us? Well, if you go back a little ways, I'd be happy to share with you one of the things that I don't think we talk about enough in the co-op community. And that's um, referring to social justice and mostly and I'm trained as an economist, so economic justice. For me, one of the most inspiring things about a cooperative is not only that it's democratically controlled and we have one member, one vote, but what's even more important to me about it is that because the members own the co-op, if there are profits in the co-op, they're returned to the members. They aren't returned to investors outside of the community they stay there in the local community and not only do they go back to people period they go back to people based on how much they use the co-op not on how much money they had to invest in the co-op so that to me it's fundamentally economic democracy and i think we don't talk about that enough and we don't talk about how different the world would be if we all received the benefits of uh, a company that we patronized based on how much we used it. And we didn't sort out who gets, you know, the extra money, the profits, based on who has the most money in the first place. So that's really the thing that I think is so important about cooperatives in addition to that they meet critical needs for people. So that's one of the things I learned as I traveled around.
0: And that's one of the things we talk about on this program. Um, I don't have in front of me, which I normally do, is the um, the seven principles. Right. So I don't know exactly which one this is, but it's, the, I think it's three. I can three. tell you,
1: actually, because I wrote them down. I thought you might talk about them. Okay.
0: Uh, and it's
1: the third one, which third, is called okay. um, members' economic participation.
0: And members' economic participation goes two ways, and when Dame Pauline Green was on the show, she's the president of the International Cooperative Alliance, I was talking about number three is that people normally have to put something in in order to be in a co-op. And she said, wait, Vernon, wait. You also get something back. It works both ways. Uh, and I, I knew that, but I wasn't talking about it that day. And what you're talking about, and I like it, is economic justice. Right. Um, and I call it building wealth, and so that's why it's a it's very 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 big for me. And I gave a speech about three weeks ago in Newark, New Jersey, for a housing for 412 unit housing cooperative that was celebrating their 50th anniversary. And it's a it's a it is a oasis in a desert, and it's on Spruce Street. And my sister, who had lived on Spruce Street in Newark, and not lived on it, but she lived in New, in in Newark and told me that Spruce Street was where they normally had drug, drug crime, lots of crime, prostitution. But this side of where this was, was just like a really oasis gated community. And a man walked up to me afterwards and he said he had never thought about how much wealth he had acquired being in the co-op. He said they had had a house before they couldn't afford it. And they moved into the co-op. They had to get rid of the house. But the cost of the housing was so much less, and he was able to raise two children, send them to college, live in a co-op in a safe environment, and he had never thought about that before. That, but co-ops are a way of creating wealth. There was another, a study that NCB conducted for a co-op in housing co-op in Atlanta called Wildwood, and they, he said that they got 7.1% return on their investment but they did not include in there the um, write-offs that you could get for uh, your portion of the interest and your portion of the property taxes. And it did not include the opportunity cost of if they lived in an the apartment, they would have paid 200 to $300 more for the same unit. So there's tremendous. And that's why he was able to send his kids to college. He wasn't paying as much for housing. So, yes, I, I, I get it, and I try to talk about it a lot, and we could figure out how we can get this knowledge out more about co-ops, whether it's a um, credit union, housing co-op, a uh, food co-op. There's all kinds of ways. If you can save 20% of your food, buying clubs, uh, you have more money to do more things with, including savings. We have another minute before we have to take another break. So do you have anything in this next minute that, that you want to say? or?
1: Sure. Um, Just to expand on the kinds of co-ops there are, I can tell you that the first um, health maintenance organization (HMO) started in this country was started as a co-op by farmers that belonged to a co-op in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl, and Mm. that went on to be the model for all of the HMOs that you know about today. I did not
0: know that. Thank you. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. 1450 WOL. This is Vernon Oakes coming to you this Thursday to talk about everything cooperative, the benefits of cooperative for you, for your community, for the U.S., and for the world. Uh, we have Dr. Ann Hoyt on the line who just became a cooperative hall of fame, a co-op hero and she is my most recent hero with dedicating her life to educating people uh, the power of cooperatives. Uh, Before we left and we were talking about cooperatives, so let me give a quick definition for anybody out there that doesn't know what a co-op is. A co-op is any business that you can think of. Uh, It can be a co-op in my world. And the main two if if the business is owned by the employees, then it's called a worker co-op. Uh, and there are numbers of examples of worker co-ops where people own, where the employees own the business. But if the people that use the products or the services own the business, then it's called a consumer co-op. And the housing co-ops we've talked about, um, the credit unions are examples of consumer co-ops. Now, there are a couple other ones, if people come together to create products and services, then that's called a producer co-op. And they do that a lot of times to buy things like fertilizer and seeds. The farmers do it so they can get, buy more gasoline, diesel fuel. They can buy a bigger quantity and get a lesser price. And though, if they come together to sell their products, uh, it's called a marketing co op and farmers have done that also. Uh, as an example, artists do, uh, do that too. So, uh, And you were talking about, uh, we talked about some of the things that happened in Zambia and Sierra Leone, but can you tell me a bit about what happens in the Italian prisons uh, and what kind of co-ops are in prisons?
1: I was hoping you would ask me that because it's one of my favorite examples of the power of cooperation. I was lucky enough to be on a tour that visited a wholesale uh, distribution company, Supply, wholesale office supply distribution company in Italy. And 30% of the people working in that uh, cooperative were prisoners. And I was just totally taken with that concept and wondered more about it. So I had an opportunity when I was on a sabbatical to visit many of the prison co-ops in Italy. And the one that was most exciting to me was a Um, high security prison that has a co-op inside the walls of the prison and uh, prisoners apply to become members and members of the co-op are both people from outside and inside and this co-op is one of the most entrepreneurial businesses I've ever experienced and when I walked in now you can imagine I'm blonde and female and uh, older and I wandered in with my escorts and everything in my translator and everybody understood that I was from the outside and they had a functioning bakery in this this prison complex and the bakery was a co- part of the co-op and a number of the bakers all of whom were inmates came rushing up to me and started talking like they do in Italy with their hands flying around and (laughs) loud. And of course, I don't speak Italian. And so I was sort of left speechless. And my translator finally explained to me that they kept pointing at the wall, you know, and gesturing and that there was a plaque on the wall and they had just won the first prize in the International Panatonic Contest, which is a baked Italian bread, and they were so excited that their co-op had won this award. The enthusiasm they had and the faith they had in their co-op was irresistible for me. And the way they work is that the Italian government has a law that favors the creation of cooperatives in Italy, and there are people who are very concerned about what happens to an offender once they leave prison and also what happens to them while they're there because the conditions in the Italian prisons are quite bad. So they started forming these co-ops that work both inside and outside of the prison depending on the co-op and provide jobs for people that have committed an offense and provide them in a way so that the earnings, once you complete your um, on-the-job training in the co-op, the earnings that the (laughs) Yeah, families are better off when you walk out of the gates, you know, and you're released. You don't, I don't know what you get now, but, you know, figuratively, you don't get $25 on a bus ticket. You have a savings account from money that you earned from being paid equal wages on the job to what you would have been paid if, you know, you were working on the outside.
0: But, but, Anne, it's so fascinating because you get knowledge, too. You learn how to run a business, so you get the knowledge that we were talking about earlier to how you run a business, and that's the training and everything, so you have a job. But then when you get out, because you're a member of the co-op, you have a job. And one of the reasons that most people end up going back and creating a, an offense in the in the U.S. is because they can't find decent employment when they get out.
1: Exactly. And the, oh, the reason this was so riveting to me was I said, okay, so what's the recidivism rate? In other words, you know, how, yeah. what percentage of people return? To you know commit after they've committed another crime, they don't have exact statistics because it's very hard to keep track of people after they leave, but they figure the the highest the highest rate I heard, and it was only one co-op that I visited was twenty percent, twenty percent, and most of them said we as best we can tell, our rate is zero to five mean, percent. it's just it's just fascinating. And powerful and exciting. So that's
0: why I'm glad you asked about it. Well, I asked about it out of everything that I've read about you, and it's awesome the kinds of things that you have done. That one surprised me, and I wanted to know, because if you look at American prisons, and right now I have three nephews and one great-nephew in jail right now, Mm. and it's normally about some kind of drug offense. It could be something else, but that's the... Well, no, I have two nephews. One is out right now, and I'm afraid he's going to go back Mm -hmm. because he has not created any skill sets that would help him. And if he had something like this, and he's 45, he's been in and out of jail his whole life. So for me, it's personal, this conversation. But if you also look at the, the numbers of prisoners that we have in the U.S., it is overwhelmingly, and I have had these numbers, I don't have them right now, but it's overwhelmingly... Filled with African American males, are in right. more yes. in a proportionate number of the, of of how many uh, African American males there are in the U.S. is a lot lot more African American males, and they keep going back. They'll you know, get out and go back and get out and go back. I I wouldn't be surprised that eighty percent go back, whereas twenty percent the highest you heard there and up to zero to five percent of the co-ops. So I would love to see if we could get laws like that in Italian government favors creating co-ops in prisons if we had those kinds of laws in the U.S., but that would go against the, it's this prison business. It's a huge business right now.
1: Right, and exactly, I, and to to communicate this idea and to talk about it, and I've given many speeches about it, That it's much harder to do here because the vested interests are so much more powerful, but I don't think it's impossible. Now, one of the things I can tell you about that Um, HMO in Oklahoma and talking about impossible, the doctors that had the idea in the first place when he started Organized Farmers to be in in, uh, cooperatively owned HMOs, the Oklahoma Medical Association and the American Medical Association came down as heavily as they could on him and he kept going and he kept going and so I think that there's stories throughout the cooperative movement about people that kept working on this idea and were successful. So not that I'm ready at this point in my life to take on the prison industrial complex, but I do think that there are models in the country for different ways that we can, that we can uh, provide a meaningful experience so that people, once they have committed a crime and been punished for it, that they can return to society and be productive.
0: Well, I don't know your age, but I'm 68 this year, and I'd like to take that on. That's one (laughs) of the things that I do. On this program, there's so many things that pop up. I didn't expect this one at all, and I thought we were just going to talk about education, not taking on the prison industrial complex. (laughs) But uh, cooperatively, you and I, and then we can get other people, I think we could get it done. It's not impossible. I agree. It would be hard. (laughs)
1: but. Well, if you want to take it up? I I keep I keep talking about it, waiting for that moment when somebody says, "I know you know a DA, or I know a warden, or I know somebody that would be interested in trying this out." It's really it's it's very inspiring, and if even if you don't believe that it's possible in this country, people love to go to Italy, even if you spend your time there visiting prisons. <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> know uh however i do have i probably shouldn't mention this on the radio but i when i was in this prison that i was talking about with the bakery and they have a whole lot of other uh, businesses they're very entrepreneurial i said have any americans um been to see this anybody you know and he said well we have tourists coming through here quite often and you might be interested to know this was several years ago that jeb bush was here and i thought oh wow now that's an interesting idea so president, we should send him a note that we knew he
0: was there in that prison. Well, you know, I think we probably should try to reach out to him for a radio program. <laughs> I had not known of any of the Bushes I'd necessarily want to bring on, but <laughs> that would be a good one to bring on to talk about this. Uh, if if he visited, and if particularly if he was anywhere inspired as much as you have been seeing it, and as much as I am hearing the story, knowing firsthand how the system doesn't help people get out of, once you're in the system, once you are labeled, and even if it's a misdemeanor, early on in life, it's more likely you're going to stay in this system. And it's very hard to get out of it, no matter what we've done. And if we could create businesses inside, that would be awesome where they could learn. Because see, the other thing I've found out about cook you learn how to run a business, But I had a lady, Ruthie Wilder, on who worked for the uh, transportation system in Baltimore, and she's the president of a housing co op. And she was saying how the things that she learned in running the co op she could use in her personal life. Mm -hmm. And learning how to manage your finances, learning how to save to replace the roof 10, 20 years down the road. If you can get those kinds of habits in your personal life, and learning how to cooperate with people when there's differences. There's, you know, the, the, the hardest thing I've had to do in life is figure out when my wife and I had a difference and there's no democracy there, There's two people, how do you figure this thing out? I mean, do you flip a coin, which normally doesn't work? But So how do you learn how to work cooperatively when there's differences is I just it's tremendous for any community, uh, whether it's uh, two people, five people, 1,000, 10 million people, it's wonderful.
1: It is actually. And the Italians have these co ops set up so that they um before you can actually work on a shop floor, you have to go through a period where you learn working skills, you learn to read if you don't know how to read to do all these basic things and huh. you learn how to work with people.
0: I want to come back and talk about that when we after the next break is the different kinds of education systems cuz I have a specific question to ask you. We'll be right back. 14:50 WOL And I've got to apologize to you and the audience. We only have one more segment to go. This 45 minutes have gone by real fast and I haven't talked to you I have five, six, seven more questions to talk to you. We're just not going to have time today, so we'll get as much done as we can. But I would love to have you on another time. But for right now, what I would ask you to do is you were talking about the different kinds of things that people have to do before they join a co-op. And I understand that food co-ops, you have to understand and maybe even pass the test on finances before you can be on the board. And I'm looking at helping to start a 200-unit co-op here in the district. No, it's in Maryland, in a in metropolitan area. And what kinds of training does one that you've seen to prepare people to be either members of co-ops or on the board of directors?
1: That's a two-part question. And here in this country, most people can join a co-op if they're willing to take on the responsibilities and want to purchase things or get services through the co-op. There isn't really a test to join. Most co-ops have a very low membership fee, and then over time you pay in a certain amount of money that helps to um, provide financial security for the company and it, it or the co-op. Um, it may be a couple hundred dollars, it may be more, depending on what kind of co-op it is, but you pay that in over time. And then the responsibilities are to Um, patronize the co-op and to participate in elections and you know we hope that people will understand that what they're in that they're in a co-op but in a credit union you know i don't think most americans that belong to credit unions like you said earlier understand that Um, we do the best we can to educate people but the requirements are not high for being a member in terms of any kind of a test but for being a director on the board Requirements are very different from one co-op to another. I serve on the board of a nearly $2 billion credit union, and we expect people to be on that board to definitely understand financial services and to be able to read financial statements and so forth because $2 billion of members' money is very important to protect mm-hmm. and make sure that it's secure. To be on the board of a, a good-sized food co-op Um, you're expected to have had some kind of experience that's relevant to running a business. We usually teach people about co-ops and orient them when they're directors. Uh, We hope they know about co-ops, but there's a lot to know and people kind of have a limited understanding. One of the things I've done quite a bit is train directors of cooperatives um, in all kinds of cooperatives, and i developed... uh, methods and tools to train people. And most of that has been training them what it means to be a director, what basic director responsibilities are, what a co-op is, and what this particular co-op is about, how to work together on a board, and um, just general governance processes. And one of the things I think cooperatives contribute to the country, any country, is people who are trained in democratic governance, the people on boards of directors. And oftentimes, boards go on, directors go on to serve in public office, um, serve other, on other boards in their communities. And I think it's a very important role that co ops play that isn't publicized enough that we are educating people to be strong partners in a democratic system.
0: Well, you said a mouthful. That is.
1: <laughs> awesome. You're supposed to get that from an educator. You know? okay. <laughs> we want you to think about this for maybe 10 minutes after you heard it.
0: <laughs> I would love to, at some point, uh, get those tools, those methods and tools that you've developed for training directors, uh, because I would both want to make sure I'm trained well and also that I might be able to pass that on. Um then the other you've mentioned food co-ops a lot. That um, what what are what is your history with food? I know you came out of the buying clubs, mm-hmm. but what else have you done with the food co-ops? Uh,
1: well, I've done a lot of training for boards of directors, like I mentioned. And then uh, for about ten years, we ran a management institute here for food co-op managers, where they came to the campus at Madison for two weeks in the summer, and then returned for a week in the winter to learn good management practices and uh, good relationships, how to develop good relationships with the board, things like that. And then for 25 years I was the person who designed and directed the National uh, Conference for Retail Food Cooperatives and had a wonderful opportunity there to uh, be the educator behind the scenes by designing a conference that was just enough ahead of people you know, to inspire them to move forward and think creatively about the industry and about co ops, but not so far forward that they, you know, they were not interested. That's a delicate balance for an educator, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. I've I've created in managing co-ops, housing co-ops, I've created this little model I'd like to hear your response to. And that is in order to be a successful co-op, you have to have good governance and good management. And governance is most important because they set the policies and procedures and management because they implement those policies and procedures. Also, the governance is more important because they um, have to evaluate the managers. And the second, the part of good, I decided uh, or describe it as in order to be good, you have to have knowledge and integrity. Yes. And of the two, integrity is more important because I have a 16-member year 16 member co-op, housing co-op of seniors. They don't have a lot of knowledge. They have common sense or mother wit, we used to call it, but they have integrity, integrity to the documents, integrity to the laws of the land, and they hold everybody accountable and they treat everybody the same. What do you think about that model and what you've learned and taught? I think it's
1: great. Sounds good. I wish I'd used it myself.
0: Okay, you got it. (laughs) Go forward,
1: yeah, go forward with it. So it sounds just like, you know, anything that you can do to make those things clear. And one of the things that people believe about co-ops, whenever they do these surveys of Americans' attitudes for cooperatives, overwhelmingly people believe they can trust their co-op. And they can trust their co-op because it's people like them meeting a need that everybody has in common. And, you know, there isn't the ethic within the business, usually. I'm not saying this is always true, but most often the ethic is to focus on members' needs.
0: Well, I think you've got it when you say the members' needs is why they are created to solve some need. So they're created by people, everyday people, to solve a need. They're not created in the capitalistic society, which, again, in the NBA, that's all I was taught was return on investment. Decisions are made. for What is the highest and maximum return on investment for the shareholder? And the shareholder, more often than not, doesn't even live in the community and may live out of the country. But you're trying to make decisions that are that would give the most dollar return, not the most benefit to the customer, the member. So, yeah, it's much easier to trust because the decisions are made so totally different. Again, that's why I've become passionate about co-ops. What are some of the innovations that have been developed by food co-ops?
1: Food co-ops have been, I think, uh, part of the research arm for the the investor-owned grocery industry. Uh, Some (laughs) of the things that have been tried in food co-ops and adopted after the food co-ops proved that they would work, the most visible one now is developing the market for natural and organic foods. Um, That market would not have existed if it hadn't been for the cooperatives. It may have developed later, but the cooperatives went out on a limb to say people want this food and figured out how to develop the product lines and the marketing tools in order to build that industry. So that's a big one. Some other ones are product labeling with you know, nutritional information on labels, that was developed by uh, food co-ops. Uh, bulk bin sales were tested by food co-ops first before they went into the general marketplace. Education, all kinds of education opportunities. You see a lot of stores that provide teaching classes and things like that. Co-ops have been doing that from, from day one because of the um, education principle in the co-ops. Um, I already told you about the healthcare organizations um, and HMOs. The model itself was developed by uh, people from co ops. One of the things that I can tell you, I'm actually today, I'm going to find out whether I have been elected to serve on the board of our local um, health maintenance organization, the Group Health Cooperative of South Central Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. The presence of that co-op in our community, which has won the highest quality, number one in quality rating for HMOs in the country in the past and is consistently in the top five HMOs in the state, the presence of that co-op, the creativity, the innovations that 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 healthcare co-op has provided in the market and pricing have been such a strong competitive force that... I believe and I think that this can be justified. Having that strong competitor in the marketplace changes the way the market operates so that operating that kind of business becomes a standard and people flock to it. Our credit union here in in um, Madison is the largest lender of home loans in our county
0: and they did not have all of the foreclosures. I we got to go. I'm sorry. I do want to have you back on, and the last word is that co-ops are very creative, and they help the marketplace in a lot of different ways that we don't even think about. We'll be back next Thursday. and thank you so very much, and I'll reach out to see if we can get you back on sometime soon.
1: Thank Thank you you, and thank you for having me.
0: Thank you very, very much.
1: 1450 WOL.